Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Atelier Wagner, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. On today's show, I'm talking to Amy Fraser, who is the founder of OK Real, a self-development platform for women that's focused on providing the community and resources that women need to build the lives they want, both in the office and outside of it. Those resources consist of everything from panel discussions and workshops to digital content and some excellent group mentoring sessions. Obviously, as a result of the pandemic, most of OK Reels events have had to move online, but in some ways that's actually a great thing for the rest of us, as it means you can now access the resources wherever you are in the world. I've been following OK Reel for several years now, and aside from it being an inspiration for the work I did when I used to run my own community, Women Who?, It's also been a real treasure trove of emotional insight and professional advice for me. It really manages to capture the intersection between happiness and ambition and self-fulfillment in a way that I haven't really seen many other platforms do, so do be sure to check it out at okreal.co. This episode is a bit of a departure from other episodes of Inked Company, I think. Obviously, I grilled Amy on all the usual stuff, like how she set up her business and her thoughts on operating in the feminist slash women's empowerment space, how to secure brand partnerships, the secrets of building a thriving community. But we also got pretty deep into an incredibly traumatic period of Amy's life that, as you'll hear, really pushed her to her limit, but also forced her to channel in the strength that I am deeply in admiration of. Speaking to her about that experience has given me some insights that I honestly think I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. And I really hope that you get as much from this interview as I did. Here's Amy. I've been following and been a fan of OK Real for years now. And it was definitely an inspiration for me when I was running Women Who. But for anyone listening who doesn't know, what is OK Real? Could you tell us a bit about that? I've always looked at OK Real as, or viewed it as kind of a resource of women's wisdom and the way that we share that wisdom has been in a variety of ways over the years. So we've done that through initially interviews, very similar to what we're doing now, but in the written form, haven't quite made it to a podcast yet. Mm -hmm. And we kind of moved on to panels, workshops, eventually built out a mentorship program and now for obvious reasons have kind of gotten more into the online learning space. So built out a digital platform where we have online courses and taken some of that mentorship element online, but really a source of courage and wisdom for women who are looking to define fulfillment and then go out and create it for themselves and looking at what that means to a variety of women. The thing that I really love about OK Real and that I think sets it apart from a lot of women's platforms that are out there is that it's not just focused on careers and work, which, you know, and that's what I did with women here and I think that's fine, but As you say, it's kind of a resource of wisdom and it really translates to every aspect of a woman's life and into their personal lives as well. Why did you decide to incorporate the personal as well as the professional into the platform? Well, I love that you've seen that. It was always an intention of mine. So I think when I was starting OK Real, I was in my mid-20s and there wasn't quite the plethora of women's platforms that there are now, which was fantastic to see that growth. But, you know, there were kind of a few strictly career-focused outlets or resources that women could head to. But what I was trying to figure out and what so many of my peers were trying to figure out is not solely how to get the job or get the promotion. It was a slew of challenges or things to figure out that 
we all have to address as not just as women, but as human beings. But I think particularly as women, we have to straddle that balance, which I don't think actually exists. But I guess that quandary of what does my family look like? And do I want to have kids? And therefore, how do my relationships pertain to the lifestyle that I'm building that then permeates the career? And so it's all intertwined. And I've always seen it as one, as opposed to a delineation between the two. And I've always loved that quote by Cheryl Strayed, which is, you don't have a career, you have a life. Mm. And that always really rung true for me. And I couldn't make a decision about my career without considering my life around it and vice versa. So it felt very natural to me when I was interviewing these women initially as this very green 25-year-old, 26-year-old perhaps, Of course, their choices around their career would ultimately influence their choices around their lifestyle. And it all ended up being quite kind of circular in that way. So I couldn't address one without the other. And so it was almost just like a natural curiosity that lent itself to the nature of the conversations as a whole. Mm. I love that because I think definitely in my 20s, early 20s, perhaps in my late 20s, actually, I was, and I still am very much about career, but as you said, I think so much more now about what sort of life I want to lead, what Mm. sort of person I want to be, what sort of people I want to have in my life, not just romantically, but also friendships, community. And there isn't that much out there for helping you think about that in a really thoughtful way, which is why I get so much out of OK Real. But Mm. I want to go back a little bit and talk about kind of the early months and years of starting because you said you started it when you were like 25 26 so oh yeah I presume you were doing that like around a full-time job how did you get it off the ground how did you fund it like what was the process (laughs) I was born and raised in New Zealand I'd lived in Canada for about six months and then ended up in New York at the end of 2009 and I must have been about 22 at that point and ended up staying in New York almost the following decade I studied communications, had a range of jobs when I got to America, including, you know, everything from nannying to starting a jewelry label to pay for my green card to working full time in a branding agency, which is a job that I got literally the day that my green card came through. I worked as an artist for a while. So it was very, had that kind of, you know, for better, for worse, that kind of multifaceted slashy title that, you know, before that word was even a thing, as a lot of millennials do, especially if you're in New York and you're in your early 20s, just trying to figure out what was the correct path for me. And I remember thinking all of these experiences that I've had career-wise have all been really enriching, but I'm not quite hitting the nail on the head. And there was something missing. What it really boiled down to was the element of fulfillment where even if things go wrong, you kind of know I'm on the right track. I didn't quite feel like I was on the right track. I knew that I didn't want to end up as an account director in an agency one day. I wasn't quite like the creative director. I'd always been a writer, but I loved the community aspect. So I felt really lost. Part of what started OK Real was that uncertainty. So something I always encourage young women to do now is to lean into that uncertainty. And it can tell you a lot about where you're supposed to be heading. And so following that curiosity and also just being really struck by how many incredible women I was surrounded by or had the privilege to be surrounded by, where I come from back in those days, you know, only maybe 10 years ago, but you could come out of university studying what I had and you could go into advertising or PR. And it was really limited. 
I got to New York and I could see that there was the representation there and just the options. And it was the best place to cut my teeth and to also expose me to just an array of possibilities of what I could become or turn myself into. I saw that as a real luxury and wanted to kind of document the paths of these women, not even necessarily for other people, but a lot of which was for myself and couldn't figure out why, you know, similarly to you saying that, you know, there's not a lot out there that focuses on that gray area that we all inhabit as women where we're not always these extreme career women. We're not always these extreme housewives that we usually inhabit somewhere in between where we want a better family, we want a better career. And so in those early years, my focus, first of all, I had a full-time job working around those long agency hours to build this website. I think I did that for, gosh, quite a while. I did at one point go freelance. I remember that happening. I was also working as an artist at the time, working with brands like Converse and some hotels and producing artwork very randomly for a short period of my life. And that's when I started building OK Real as another project. And I was always really deliberate about wanting it to become a business, but it was pre-startup boom VC era of New York. You know, it was probably 2014 and that didn't really get into full swing until kind of 2016, I think, from memory. So getting investment didn't really occur to me. I didn't have that financial literacy. It just wasn't as popular back then. And so my natural inclination was to build a community. And I also felt very young. I felt like I was asking questions that I didn't really have the authority to answer. Mm. And so I really focused on letting these other women and their voices build the OK Real world. And I stayed very much in the background. In terms of getting it off the ground with no capital, it was a huge struggle. I mean, look, it still is, you know, I think especially now you really have to pay to play. And even that's changed drastically. I worked multiple jobs in order to fund it. I put everything into it. And in the beginning, when we started doing events, I would do all of the promotion and promote it on Instagram. And even Instagram as like a commercial platform was still coming up then. I remember I would be just dragging these boxes because I'd, you know, (laughs) get all of this stuff like for goodie bags and whatever and sell tickets for a really nominal fee for like 20 something dollars because I don't know, I was like, are people going to pay for this? This is before we introduced a partnership model dragging these boxes up walk-ups to studios where we'd host these events and then unpacking everything, then ticking everybody off at the door. And sometimes we'd have up to like 60, 70 people crammed in like a tiny studio in Soho and then serving everybody wine and dealing with like grumpy people who didn't want to sit on the floor and then hosting the event. And then I'd send out like a survey after every event saying, you know, how could we improve? And so that's kind of how I did it. I was always really lucky in that I get very keen interns to help me out or friends. And it grew from there. The way we really started making money was through partnerships. And so once we started pushing these events more frequently, that's when we started to get approached by companies who would then pay us. And then I had somebody else <laughs> help with you know, production. I was sort of laughing as you're talking because there are so many parallels between what you were doing, what I was doing in the kind yeah. of early months and years of women who have just really bootstrapping. You're doing things in a really DIY way, but also you're presenting this really slick, shiny front to the world. Like I would have never expected that was what was going on in the background. But <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about growing it as a business and growing the revenue. Mm. And you mentioned partnerships, which yes. 
I think I very much understand that that's kind of the key for a lot of platforms like this. I'd love to understand how you went about getting and securing those partnerships. Like, obviously, I'm sure you had a lot of inbound stuff, but like in terms of actually landing them and getting them over the line, that can be really tricky. So how did you do that? I learned a lot along the way. As I said, I'd worked in kind of agency worlds for a while in New York and so had a rough understanding of how to manage clients. But conversion was not something that I was familiar with. And even sales, I had no experience in sales. I also really struggled with selling a product that wasn't quantitative and it wasn't data-driven and it wasn't tangible. And so I was selling this qualitative product essentially, which was people are going to get in the room and feel really good and that's going to cultivate really high brand association and it's going to be a great time and just trust me, different clients want different things, but I always really struggled with how to convey value. So how I went about that was in the early days, I would meet with as many people I could who I could learn from in terms of how to convey that value and also how to measure it myself because what was I really selling? And in the end, the biggest value add, you know, that we could provide as a company did seem to be the community aspect. Mm. And so I looked a lot into, oh, should we do kind of banner ads? And I was like, I don't want to sell clicks. You know, I want to sell a good time. I want to sell a change in somebody's thinking. I want to sell a shift in mindset. Mm. I want to sell an energy. And so I remember really struggling with that especially in those early days. Luckily, New Yorkers do have an understanding of that currency, if you will. And so back when we were doing our thing, panels weren't actually a common form of marketing for brands. Totally, totally, totally. Do you remember that? Yeah, they've become very ubiquitous to the point where sometimes it feels like it's saturated. I still think a really well-curated panel can cut through, and I think that's what OK Real does. I think brands just putting on like a slightly slapdash panel event has unfortunately diluted how special they are. But I definitely remember it was kind of 2015 that I left my job in advertising, pivoted to writing and various other things. And I went Mm. to a lot of panel events and a lot of IRL events because I had access to these people and I could ask them questions and I could go up to them afterwards and I could get their email and I could follow up with them and I could have a coffee. Like that was really, really special. And there was a period in time, 2015, 2016, where I felt like I could really do that. And so I went to so many events. I used to go to like an event a week because, again, I was trying to kind of reshape my career, didn't really know how to do it. So I would just follow people who I found impressive and try and get myself in front of them. But as you say, when you were setting up OK Real in the early days, that was a lot rarer. It was a lot rarer. And so when we had companies approach us who got it, That was the nirvana, right? Because they already understood the value. They'd already been able to pinpoint that value without me having to sell it. Mm. And so when you have somebody already speaking your language, that sale or that conversion becomes a lot easier. We caught this wave also of this neo-feminism, right? Like that happened around 2014 or whatever it was. And so we were able to ride that for a while, which worked in our favor, essentially, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to do women's empowerment. Mm -hmm. And so that was a thing. So I was like, oh, this is great timing. So we had a few companies approach us. I think our first ever partner was Everlane. And then I think we worked with Urban Outfitters. There were a few partners we worked with initially. It wasn't transactional. There was no funds exchanged. We were just like, yeah, we'd love to use your space and your audience. And then once we'd done that once or twice, I was like, okay, there's definitely like value here. So let's start charging. 
And so that's when that started. And I was like, okay, so this is a great way for this company to make money. Ticket fees, you're never going to make money selling $20 tickets unless you're selling out like thousands and thousands of people. And so it became a way I was like, okay, this is how I'm going to make money with this thing. I do think that I was lucky in the way that we had so much word of mouth. I think all of our, from memory, we've never had to pitch. So there's definitely been jobs that we've missed out on because competition started to rise, you know, especially around 2017. And that's all perfectly normal. And so as more people approached us, I started to see the benefit in having kind of a retainer client. So instead of saying, yes, let's do one event, it was more, well, let's do a series of five or let's do a series of three. And then there were also digital opportunities. So for example, we worked with Mattel who wanted to launch a series of career barbies. Were there any mistakes that you made looking back in terms of how you approached brand partnerships? Like, is there anything that you would have done differently? I don't know if there are really clear examples where I made huge blunders, for example. But for example, a media kit, constantly reworking media kits. You know, something I've learned is that a brand will always open a deck or a media kit wanting to know immediately what's in it for them. Mm. And I think when you are starting out, you'll try and talk a lot about yourself or your brand and kind of forget that this is not actually about you. This is about what the client is getting. I think having an understanding of, and this you can only learn with time, of who has money and who doesn't, Mm. (laughs) of who, irrespective of whether they have money, is still a value add to work with, of who is worth pursuing when they're already seeming difficult. Those are all good lessons, to be honest. I think those are the things that I've learned, not just in terms of brand partnerships, but just especially in terms of clients, like that thing, what you just said about who is worth pursuing when they already seem difficult. Like that for me now, if I get a bad vibe from someone wanting to work with me from the get-go, that for me is just a no-go because I'm like, well, if the kind of initial outreach and the initial conversation is already looking a bit shaky, they are not going to be any more pleasant. In fact, I feel like that's a piece of wisdom I actually stole from you. I feel like you once said something really? like, if you're not enjoying the journey, then you're not going to like the destination. Oh, no. Not going to enjoy the results. Yeah, which is, I've, I really bear that in mind. I, I say that to people all the time now. If you're not enjoying the journey, if you're not enjoying the process, then you're not going to like the destination. So, But I want to change topics slightly and talk about yeah. flexibility and pivoting because I've always mm. been really impressed with how you have adapted OK Real according to the needs of your own life and also your community's needs. And I think probably maybe the biggest pivot that I've observed over the past couple of years is when you moved from New York City back to New Zealand. And we'll talk about why that is later on in the podcast. But essentially, pre-pandemic, you were raising a baby on one continent and running a business in the mm-hmm. other. And I just want to know how the hell you did that, because it's just very impressive. But how did that work in terms of the economics of things and in terms yeah. of delegating and hiring help? Like, how did you approach that? Well, it was madness and wouldn't recommend it. However, now that that period of my life is gone, nothing could stop me. But mm. COVID did. You know, it was kind of <laughs> <Yes>. like <laughs> nothing could get in my way until the... I mean, it's almost comical, right? Like, I had a business 
And I was kind of forced to leave New York, essentially, which, as you say, we'll discuss why. That couldn't stop me. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm pregnant. I've got a newborn or whatever. I'm going to keep it up. Watch me go. And then it was like, oh, no, 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 wait. But there's actually going to be a pandemic that is going to make international travel, not only international travel, but the gathering of people illegal. (laughs) Your whole business model. (laughs) (laughs) My entire business model. I mean... It's funny now, right? And I think that what you may have seen as pivoting on the surface has been just an absolute scramble, which is like the nicest way to describe it in the background. So in terms of the realities of what it takes to have an eight-week hold and jump on a plane, first of all, you need a really good support system. I had my mother and my family at large, so I was never dragging my son across continents. What happened to me and that experience I felt like I had a lot taken away from me and my business and my community and my life in New York, like I'd really spent my formative years there from 20 to 30. It meant everything to me. It was everything I knew. And so I wasn't ready to give that up as well. So what it looks like to do what I did is being able to leave my kid with my newborn son, I should say, like with my mother. I couldn't have done that if I had a nanny, for example, I really needed to leave him with somebody who he'd grown up with. And I was living with my parents at the time. So let's not romanticize or glamorize this. I was living with my parents. I'm just going to jump in quickly there because I feel like actually it might be useful to kind of talk about that situation now and provide Mm -hmm. some context. And I will let you share that and say as much as you feel comfortable with. Yeah, sure. So I had married an American, or I'd been with him since I kind of arrived in New York. We'd been married for probably about eight years. And when I was five months pregnant in 2017 with our planned child, I got a text message from one of his girlfriends who lived in a different city in America. What transpired upon speaking with her and lovely woman, I mean, all of them were in the end, is that he essentially had multiple lives that he was running in various parts of America, the world, traveling with these women, some of whom knew that I existed, not in a wife and mother-to-be capacity, or didn't know I existed at all. So anyway, there was a variety of kind of stories going on, and he traveled a lot, so that enabled this lifestyle. First of all, I had a number of events, and it was perfect timing. Also, just to kind of fast forward with the business and where that was at, I had five staff, not all full-time, but OK Real was right at the height. All of that hard work had paid off and everything was going really well. I was working hard. I was pregnant. I had a great team of women. I was just loving where I was at. And then this happens. I'm in the trauma and just like the the shock, particularly when you're in that vulnerable state. It was a lot. And so I had, I think, an event in New York. I had a few in San Francisco that I was flying one of my team members out to kind of It was really not great timing, but my mum came, as great mothers do, and she helped me pack up. I couldn't foresee staying, A, in my apartment or in that city, in that current state. And so I came back to New Zealand after I flew from San Francisco to New Zealand. So I basically packed up my entire life in two days, got on a plane, presented a number of events, and then came back home. What followed on from there is... God, that's like a whole other podcast. But um, (laughs) essentially what it did was just rip my entire security system from the roots up and force me to completely change. One of the biggest things for me was the move from New York back to New Zealand so unexpectedly 
that has caused so much grief. It was such a big part of who I was, who I am. Mm. So there was that on top of just the obviously standard relationship being pregnant. So the huge lifestyle shift was a lot to deal with. And then obviously I have this business. So I came back to New Zealand. I was probably quite depressed for a while. Um, I didn't really leave the house. I moved back in with my parents. I was pregnant, but still working full-time was kind of what kept me alive, that community. I was very vocal about what had happened as well. I was very open about it from the beginning. I never felt like it was my secret to hide. It felt like this really ugly thing that had happened to me and hiding it felt like it made it worse. And I think Brene Brown does a really brilliant job of talking about shame and how it festers when it's hidden. There's already so much shame that comes with that. And so keeping it quiet, that felt worse to me. I was just kind of like, yeah, this really shitty thing happened. And being able to talk about it and then having a lot of other women come forward to me and say like, oh my God, this happened to me too. And just seeing that you can live through something like this. And again, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, you don't have a career, you have a life. And what was so beautiful about OK Real is that all this time I thought I'd been building this community for other people. And yet unbeknownst to me, I was the one who was going to need them. Mm. That's so beautiful. I actually feel a bit emotional listening to you talk about it because I, you know, at the time I was following you and I saw it unfold and Mm. I personally don't think I could have coped with that. Like to me, it felt like just unsurvivable and you know this because I've messaged you about it constantly. I'm like, please write a book about it. I know, I'm going to write a book. (laughs) Honestly, you have to, please. But the amount of resilience that you must have drawn on to get through it and to pick yourself back up. I mean, This is such a big question, but how did you get through it? Because I genuinely just don't understand, except for the fact that I've seen Mm. you get through it. How did you do that? Well, I appreciate the kind words. And honestly, I think that being a mother, and I felt like I was a mother at that point, even though I had this unborn baby, I think that had a lot to do with it. This wasn't about me anymore. Mm. Nothing is really about you anymore. Well, for me as a mum, as long as my kid's safe, I can figure anything else out, right? Mm. And so... I look at mothers who have children who are sick or their kids have terminal cancer. I don't know how they do it because that to me is unsurvivable. What I went through, it feels unsurvivable at the time, but how did I do it? At the time, it felt like I wasn't doing it, but I think that's really important to note. It didn't feel like I was doing anything other than just deciding to get out of bed every day. I initially really retreated. I had quite a bit of PTSD. I think being pregnant, naturally, you want to kind of hibernate and like scratch the walls like a cat or whatever those funny analogies are that they give to pregnant women who are about to give give birth. (laughs) So you already feel like you want to just curl up into a ball. So it was that times a million. I didn't really see anybody. And this is something I don't speak about very often, but kind of dragged into a court case. Oh, wow. Yeah. A week after my son was born, which is a whole. No, not many people do. But in those early days, how did I do it? I went for a walk every day. I kept up with my work. I didn't abandon the things that still made me feel like who I was. Even though I felt abandoned, I had still built a sense of self outside of that relationship. And OK Real has a lot to do with that. And so I hung on to the things that still gave me a sense of value. Because when something like that happens, your entire metric or sense of value is shattered. And so you kind of look around on the floor for the things that you can hold on to. My family was one of those things and my business was one of those things and my son was one of those things. 
And so you just hold on for dear life to those things that you still have. What that looks like on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't look like this big resilient act. It simply looks like, like I said, like going for a walk. I know that sounds super basic, but on the day-to-day level, it reminds me of, you know, those David Edinburgh monologues where he's looking at like a plant or something (laughs) and they do that fast sped up video of like the plant growing or whatever. Day-to-day, it doesn't feel like anything at all (laughs) other than I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to send that work email and I'm going to distract myself as much as I can and I'm going to do the things that I should be doing, like go to therapy and whatever. Then my son arrived. That gave me a huge focus and a huge reason to not just get by, but to actually really thrive. And I think I had gotten to somewhat of a place kind of before he was born where I'd started going out with friends. I'd reacquainted myself with my little hometown of Auckland and slowly pieced together some semblance of a life. I started running mental circles while I was like 37 weeks pregnant because I didn't know what else to do. I was like, well, I guess I can keep working. So I would say to anybody who is facing what seems unfaceable to hold on to the things that give you a semblance of power or agency And you can't let anybody else define how your life is going to turn out. Regardless of what had happened, I always did feel a sense of responsibility that like, yeah, this has happened, but ultimately you are still in charge of how the story ends. And I just owed it to my kid, you know, I owed it to myself. And there was definitely an element of defiance that helped. I was like, you don't get to do this to me. You do not get to do this to me. And so there was a refusal there. There was a, I will not subscribe to this ugliness and to this, this is not my life. This is something that has happened to me, but this is not who I am. So it was almost like a desperation. I was like, no, 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 (laughs) no. This doesn't end here, you know? Mm. I mean, yeah, for once in my life, I'm speechless because... The way you've handled that and what you're saying about wanting that scenario to play out on your own terms, I think is so important to remember. And I'm trying to kind of memorise that now because, as you say, you had no control over what happened to you and what your ex did to you. But you really, really took control and I felt like you really chose happiness and chose to thrive. And I think Mm. you really were presented with a choice at that point in time, which is either to kind of give up and wallow in it, which is understandable, but it seemed like a really active and conscious choice. And and something else that you said that has really stood out to me as a single 30-year-old woman thinking about relationships in the bigger picture is that you had built a sense of self outside of your relationship. Mm. Because I think so many women completely lose themselves in relationships Mm. and they don't sustain the friendships, the interests, even the career that they had before going into the relationship. And I feel like this is almost a testament to why it's so important for women to continue doing those things and to really have something outside of your relationship that you love and that sustains Mm. you and that you have community outside of that because relationships can end. So thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's a story that I've wanted to share for, for a while. I'm curious actually just kind of moving slightly on 
about mm. how becoming a mother has changed your relationship to work and productivity because I see you as very much this powerhouse and like oh, it's so nice. super efficient <laughs> and, and you really get shit done but I mean I don't have kids but I know that having a child must change that so how did you navigate that? I found it really hard to be honest I found it really challenging I think especially going from New York where you have a very selfish lifestyle over there, you know, we all do when we're working and your time is completely your own. I could get up at 5 a.m., go to a yoga class or whatever, work from essentially 6.30 to 8, which is what we all do, and then go grab some dinner at 9 with a friend. <laughs> Very different now. And I think that was a huge adjustment period, not only because of my environment. So New Zealand is probably the absolute polar opposite to New York, where people don't work like insane people here, which is, you know, for the better. It's very sleepy. It's very quiet. It's very family oriented here. It's like, you know, you're in the suburbs. You don't come to New Zealand to really like kickstart your career. You really come to New Zealand to to raise a family and to settle down. So in some ways, you know, that worked because I was having a baby, but just because I'd had a baby didn't quieten that drive. And I know that for some women it does. And I completely understand and respect that. For me, that part of me was still very much alive of wanting to work, of wanting to get out there, of not wanting to sit at home and love my son. I think it's really important to note that you don't know until you have the baby. I know that some women have thought, I want to continue my career. And then they have their kids and they're like, actually, this is what I'm here for. And I mean, that's incredible. Other women have their kids and like, love my child, but I want to continue with my career. So you never really know until that baby is born. In the first kind of few weeks, oh, so besotted and you're on this entirely different frequency. Your brain is rewired. All you can do is think about this baby. But once that frequency starts to acclimate and you return back to the normal self that you once were, I found that not owning my time anymore was extremely challenging. And if I wanted to have a meeting, for example, I had to think about what I was going to do with my child. And for me, it was never like, oh, I can't party on the weekends anymore because I didn't do that in New York. I just worked. For me, it was like, oh, if I want to work now, I can't do that. I have to, I can, but I have to figure out how to arrange childcare. Or if I want to go for a walk, that's at a different time than his nap. There was just so many elements that I had a difficult time with in terms of not owning that time anymore. I mean, even breastfeeding, I was like, is there a fridge where I am so that I can store my breast milk? I mean, the amount of places I've pumped milk in New York, I mean, we're talking, there are no public toilets, right? So Starbucks, backs of cabs, and changing rooms of stores when I was shopping on airplanes. I mean, there are so many different things that you don't consider before you have kids and why would you? So it's taken me years. It's nice to hear that I look like this powerhouse, but honestly, you do adapt though. I think for me, it was learning having my son in childcare three days a week doesn't work. I get like one thing done. So for me, it was about accepting that I am never going to have the same amount of productivity as I used to ever because my day starts with him and then finishes with him and I can have that in between time. But I also wanted to be able to pick my child up from kindy or daycare. So finishing work at 5.30 as opposed to 8.30, that was a huge adjustment. But now I get it. Raz, my number one priority. So it's learning how to shift kind of your daily habits around your new priorities, mm. which is a weird thing to do. I want to be there for him, you know, and I think that the beauty of being able to 
run a business and have my own clients and not work in an office is that it's really important for me. For example, if I get a call from his kindy and they say, oh, he's sick, I can drop whatever I'm doing and go pick him up. So that kind of flexibility is important. But as a working mother, there's not really time for you anymore unless you really carve it out. So if I wanted an hour to like work out, I'd probably have to get up at five for example, so that I could do that while I know that Ben's here, Ra's here, or I would have to work out. Just like the simple task of exercising, it would have to be within work hours. So you're always making a sacrifice. But the reward of having this little boy in my life, I don't really care if I never work out again, if that's what I get, you know? So it all pays off. It all pays off. And somebody once said to me, people talk about ROI. The best ROI is always going to be in your kids because the return is limitless. And even with work and a career, you can get the client, you can get that big paycheck and it feels yeah good at the time, but then you want the next thing. And with a child, there's no cap. They take a lot from you, but they give you back so much more. And so it's learning how to adjust with what they take, but knowing that the return will always be so much greater than what you sacrifice. I love that sentiment. I think it's great to hear someone who is also self-employed, actually, I think that's important to me, talk honestly about motherhood and what it takes to be a working, business-owning, business-running mother in a way that feels very approachable. There are narratives out there in the media space, but you've said a lot of things that I've never heard before. So I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, like, you make less money because I'm not working on the weekends anymore and Mm. I'm working probably, like, four hours less every day. You could turn this into a feminist discussion, but it's also a personal choice. I actually want to spend time with my son as a mother, but you know, that's a reality. I'm going to make less money. Of course I am because time spent on my business is now time spent on my child, but I want it that way. It's an interesting discussion and I don't feel like people address it. There's this whole like, you can do it all. It's like, yeah. (laughs) I haven't heard anyone say you make less money, which makes total sense, but no one ever really puts it that bluntly. I mean, I do. I mean, maybe other people. I appreciate that. That's that's kind of the point I'm making. But I appreciate, you know, as a self-employed woman who may or may not one day have kids, it's kind of good to really have like an honest picture of it. But I want to move on slightly and kind of move things back to talking about OK Real, Mm. because it's an excellent example of community building. You've talked so much about community during this interview. So I'd love to get your tips For someone wanting to set up their own community or network, or let's say you're a brand who wants to build a genuine, thriving community, not just like start an Instagram and call it community. Like, what are the ingredients of a really thriving, functioning community? Your focus should be on what you're giving them and not what you can take from them. Mm. So I think that your primary objective should first be, how are we serving these people? Secondly, are our brand values attracting or cultivating the kind of community that are going to reflect those values back? You can kind of tell a lot about your brand by the people you're attracting. Mm. That's something to consider. And I also do think, call me old-fashioned, but I do think that a real community requires, in the initial stages, high touch. I think that having a human element is really important And I mean, look, you see these startups and they, I don't know, it's like a clean beauty product or whatever. And they all of a sudden have like this huge Instagram following and like all their community or whatever. And there's a difference. I think that if you want to create a community, for me, it's always been about loyalty and less about numbers. 
OKREAL has never been this really massive platform. And so for me, it's always been about the people who are in our community, however, are really engaged and they get it. So it is more niche. So that requires a lot of kind of manual involvement from the get-go. And there's also a difference between having a following and having a community. Yeah. I think what a lot of brands, a lot of people have maybe as a following or even an audience, it's not the same thing as a community. And I say that as someone who has also run a community. And I love that you started off saying it has to be high touch because actually you lugging these boxes up five flights of stairs and being there to welcome everyone at the start of an event getting to know people's names, getting to know the regulars, mm. chatting with them on Instagram. That is the stuff that is really necessary to build a genuine community and also a community where people are going to connect with each other because it can't just be about the connection between you, Amy, the founder, and a community member. People also need to be making connections at these events. And I think you kind of lead by example as a community mm. founder how you operate. Yeah, all of that stuff is so important. And I don't think people do that so much anymore maybe don't have the opportunity or there's a founder but it's really uncommon I think now to build a startup without capital and so typically when there's capital involved there's a team involved and so you might be sending along like your marketing intern to welcome Mm. everybody Mm. and so there's just a disconnect right yeah so I guess the beauty of not having a silver spoon I don't know is that I was able to build people around me with genuine connection Mm. so yeah I want to wrap up by asking a couple of questions about the most important things that you've learned through running this platform, because you've interviewed and featured so many incredible women on OK Real. I'd love to know what you think their connecting thread is, like what the one thing they all have in common is. The connecting thread, the commonality between these women. I think I've always been attracted to the type of woman who has a sense of strength And that kind of independence that we've talked about today, Mm. someone who's been able to carve out a path for themselves that has required courage, humility, and intelligence as well. You know, people who have done it, who've been quite smart about how they've gone about things and who haven't trampled on others to get there. Mm -hmm. So it's a sense of kindness, of strength, of independence. And not all of these women perhaps have these qualities you know I've definitely interviewed women who somebody might say well she's not a very nice person or (laughs) but I think that that's also important in terms of the diversity so Mm. looking at the different ways that people have done things has always been quite appealing to me but I would say the one thing would probably be like a sense of agency they've decided who they are and haven't let others get in the way of that. I mean, I feel like providing women with a sense of agency is literally what OK Real is all about, like if I had to sum it up to someone else. So. Well, that sounds like a great tagline. I'll take it. Amy, thank you so much for talking to me today. It has been an absolute pleasure and I'm so excited to put this interview out. Likewise, thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to connect again. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money, and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegiwagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. 
And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost.